Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. This is the elections edition where I bring you different candidates from all parties that are running in this year's federal election in Canada. My guest today is the Honorable Leo Husakos. He is a good friend and a member of the Canadian Senate. We talk a little bit about the role of the Senate, but mostly different issues revolving around this year's election. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Leo Husakos, um, I'm not so sure how to call you. I mean, we've known each other for a long time. I don't know if you go with the official titles. I mean, you're you're the honorable senator. Or you uh, can call me Leo, if that works as well. Joe. <laughs> how are you, man? You can call me the that. honorable sir, mr. whatever. I'm going to start calling you Mr. Tsandrizic. Yeah, no, that, that's my dad, Mr. And that's your dad, exactly. Yeah, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm all right. Can't complain. Um, how's the family? Before we get started, I mean, we're so dipped into politics, we forget sometimes that we're humans uh, and that, you know, we're not robots. Uh, how has the year been for you, man? How's the how's the family? It's been hard for everyone, but uh, it's, uh, it's I feel like tough. I should ask. It's been tough slugging, as you therapist. So uh, she's been particularly... Uh, affected by COVID knee deep, her and her staff uh, right at the front lines dealing with it. So you see the human challenges and uh, the difficulties that all Canadians are facing coast to coast to coast. And it's uh, heart wrenching. People don't realize those of us that haven't been directly affected. Uh, and thank God most Canadians haven't. But there's been 26,000 plus Canadians that have died. They've lost their lives in the course of this tragedy. Yeah, no, it's it, it's crazy when you think of it. Um, uh, but uh, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad the family's fine. Uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about the election. Um, but before we do that, just for everyone watching or listening, just you know, we need to clarify: you're you're you were appointed to the Senate, so obviously you're not running to get reelected. You don't have a seat in the race. Um, you are, however, involved in the election. I was always under the impression that when elections came along. Uh, uh, senators left on vacation. That's what I always, but apparently that's not the case, is it? Look, senators, uh, we're all independent by virtue of our of our appointment. We're appointed till the age of 75, and there's the running gag on Parliament Hill. They say that there's no better uh, words you can hear from somebody's mouth after the day of an election other than, good morning, Mr. Senator. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yes, we're not affected by the elections, but you know what? We're parliamentarians. Uh, and we have a stake in this country. And as advocates, I think we have a moral obligation to be heard during the elections, because at the end of the day, even though we're an appointed chamber of parliament, we're accountable to people as much as anybody. So I'm a proud conservative, as you know, for many, many years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not compelled to do it. But when I feel I believe in the program and the party and the leader, uh, I put in that little extra effort to help uh, to help our candidates. There's been a lot of changes made. Uh, well, not a lot, but some significant changes made in the Senate. Um, when Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015, he changed the whole uh, system of appointing senators. I don't know if that's going to go on now or, or is that just his decision? Is there a talk about bringing it back? 
to more partisan I mean nomination I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because like everything else Trudeau has done for six years it's been a, an exercise in hypocrisy and a public relations uh, dog and pony show I called it so he did promise to make the place more independent less partisan by eliminating uh, party caucuses in terms of his appointments and creating what he calls an independent appointment process but if you scratch under the surface and you look over the last six years number one uh, his appointees who call themselves independent, they talk like liberals, they vote like liberals, 96% independent senators voted with the government, 96% of the time. I, for example, as a conservative senator, a partisan quote-unquote senator, I voted with the Trudeau government 24% of the time and 76% of the time against. So who is more independent? And that's why I say earlier, your independence doesn't come by your title. It comes by how you speak, what positions you take on issues and how you vote. So also if you scratch the surface a little bit deeper, all these vetting committees who supplied lists to be nominated by Mr. Trudeau, they have a connection to the Trudeau Foundation. Monsieur Gignac, his latest appointment from Quebec is a former provincial cabinet minister liberal cabinet minister. So all these senators that he's appointed are left of center, uh, liberal, left center minded advocates. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say this is a hocus pocus independent Senate because when well, it's well, there, there, yeah, there, there, there's uh, there's Tony Lafretta that was appointed not too long ago. I mean, he's more I, I, I guess I'm wrong unless I'm wrong, but I, I've gotten to know him over the last years and he always seemed to me to be more on the right side of the spectrum. Well, he's a banker. He's a businessman. Uh, on the record, he's a good friend of mine. So I have a yeah. partisan opinion of, of uh, Tony. But Senator Lafreda, at the end of the day, look at his voting record, has voted overwhelmingly in favor of government motions, government legislation. If you look at his advocacy, when's the last time we heard my good friend Senator Lafreda criticize Mr. Trudeau for the Wee scandal, criticize Mr. Trudeau for the terrible handling of the Norman case, criticize Mr. Trudeau for... Uh, terrible foreign policy positions like in Artsakh against the Armenian people or against China. He always toes the government line. He calls himself independent, like all Trudeau appointees. They have to be. First of all, if you didn't call yourself independent, Mr. Trudeau wouldn't appoint you. But my point is, yeah. why doesn't the senator, why doesn't the prime minister give him the freedom to sit and articulate publicly what the political philosophy is the question i have leo these independently appointed senators is it only you know from 2015 onward like you you guys you still have a, a conservative caucus you're still affiliated to yes, the party yes. or it applies to everyone as of 2015. in the senate you have a government leader deputy leader a leadership group which is appointed by the prime minister they call themselves independent as well just for you to understand what a joke this is the okay. government leader in the senate the government representative the guy that represents the government tables legislation make sure government legislation is supported speaks for the government answers questions he calls himself independent non-affiliate yeah we all the you know we have a conservative caucus there's an independent senate group another one's called the progressive senate group uh but again all of these senators who have been appointed by liberal prime ministers they seem to advocate left of center politics 
They always vote with the government. So like I like to say, the worst thing a parliamentarian can do is not be accountable and transparent to our public and say to them what we are. I'm a proud conservative. My speeches reflect that. My voting record reflects that. And people forget that the Senate has a role, like the House of Commons. The Parliament of Canada has two chambers, and our role is to keep the government to account. So my challenge uh, to Tony LaFreda and all the other independent senators, and they're all good colleagues and they advocate for things they believe in, in order to be independent, you also have to criticize the government from time to time when they deserve criticism. Uh, Leo, what's happening with all these proponents in favor of abolishing the Senate? Is it still going around? Because uh, it, it was a it was a it was a thing uh, not not too long ago. Of course, there's been uh, first of all, you know, historically speaking, Senate reform has been a topic that began the day after the Senate was created in 1867. Yeah. So it was created by the founders of Confederation, and ever since then we've had a debate what to do with it. Now, I'm an advocate of believing that the Senate has to be either an elected body uh, and it has a role to play, but in 2021. Uh, we have to be, I think, representative 100% of the people uh, and speak for the people. Uh, there's those that advocate abolition. I don't think abolition is a solution. If you look at the Westminster model of parliament, which is what ours is, we've inherited from the British parliamentary system, there's always two chambers and there needs to be a counterbalance uh, between one and the other. But you have a dip, you have the where you run into difficulty is when you don't have the moral authority, the democratic authority, which we don't. So we make amendments to bills, we delay bills that we think Canadians find to be very egregious. Uh, but we always understand at the end of the day that the House of Commons is the elected body and they deserve to have the final word. Now, again, Mr. O'Toole in this campaign, he's advocating to reform the Senate to make it an elected body. Mr. Trudeau continues to be advocating for this sham process of saying, I've appointed independent senators, but half of them have made donations to the Trudeau Foundation or former candidates to the Liberal Party or cabinet ministers uh, in provincial liberal governments, but yet he calls them independent. So, uh, look, there's been a many attempts. Mr. Mulroney attempted to, to create a triple E Senate, if you remember. Uh, the Reform Party from out west wanted to abolish the Senate. Uh, it's part of our constitution. It's very difficult, as we know, those of us in politics, to amend uh, the Constitution of Canada. It's the most difficult thing to do because mm -hmm. you open up a can regional diversity and regional conflicts that emerge from those constitutional discussions, especially here in Quebec. So mm -hmm. uh, people have been trying to reform the place for 153 years. I guess we will continue to try for the next 153 years. I hope to see one day uh, that we create a balance and solve the inequity, inequity in regional representation and eventually make it an elected body. Um, let's talk a little bit about the election. What are you mostly involved with uh, right now during the campaign? I'm helping out at, at, at my own will. I don't have a formal role in the party. Uh, as somebody who resides in Montreal, in the greater Montreal area, I, I volunteer my time to do some door-to-door -door for my candidates. I, I do some fundraising wherever I can help our local candidates. Uh, having had now uh, more than 40 years of experience in, in, uh, in politics and in organization, I guide some of them. A lot of our candidates are, are new to the political scene, which is enthusiastic and exciting, uh, but they need some guidance. As you know full well, George, politics is, a, is an art and with experience comes uh, some knowledge. 
So more than anything, I'm sharing my knowledge uh, and I, I'm trying to pass the message that it's time for change. After six years of Mr. Trudeau's uh, constant failures, I think Mr. O'Toole provides a contrast. He is someone who is uh, an adult in the room. He's somebody who has a clear vision of what he wants to do with government. Uh, and I think it will be refreshing to see an Aaron O'Toole government in the next four years. Well, what's interesting is that we kind of see this reflected in the numbers. Um, and I, I mean, you've you've seen way more campaigns than I have. Uh, I and I, I, I was, I, I, you know, I was looking back at, you know, my experience through politics, and I don't believe that I remember, or at least if it even happened, that going into a campaign, the leading uh, party had 20 point, a 20 point lead. So that I don't remember. And what I definitely don't ever recall is that same party losing that 20 point lead within a week, which is, which is huge. And I mean, we still have three weeks left to campaign. I mean, there's still a long time ahead and to lose that huge gap. I mean, now we're at a point where the conservatives are slightly ahead by four or five points, which could be negligible at this point on. I mean, we still have a lot of room left. But to lose that ground is uh, is spectacular. I've never I've never seen anything like that. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm old enough, unfortunately, to remember uh, a couple of occasions that might be comparable. Probably the most comparable would be the 19, and you're you're probably way too young to remember this, George. But the 84 election. Uh, John Turner's Liberals at that time had an enormous lead on Brian Mulroney's Conservatives, uh, and week by week over the 84 election that. They won a historic majority government, the largest number of seats in the history of the country, 211 mm -hmm. seats in 1984. But you're right, since then, it's very, very odd to see what was everyone perceived before the campaign, that this would be a slam dunk. Mr. Trudeau would have a victory lap uh, and celebrate his successes of the COVID management uh, of this crisis. And it hasn't transpired. He's, uh, he's, he's literally fallen all over himself over the last 18 days. And Aaron- why do, you think, uh, why do you think that is, Leo? I think quite honestly, if I can be partisan and blunt, uh, Mr. Trudeau, if you look at his government the last six years, they've been very good at photo ops. They've been good at pontificating. They've been good at talking points. They haven't been very good at governing. Starting from the first promise in 2015 to have a limited and manageable deficit that they would balance by, tw by, by 2018. That came and went, they never balanced it. And if you look at all the other promises that followed that, like I said, they were gonna plant a, a billion trees. They haven't planted a single tree. These are, and, and I can go on and on. They said Canada would be back on the world scene because the previous government was terrible at managing foreign affairs. It's been one spectacle after another. So I think what happened in this case, they went into an election campaign thinking that the Canadian public would buy their rhetoric and their talking points and their photo ops like they did in 2015 and 2019. And I'll tell you what happened. Two things happened. Number one, shockingly, and I have to say I was surprised, it seems that all of a sudden Canadians have woken up and they said, okay, Mr. Trudeau, you're not running against Mr. Harper anymore. He's gone now six years ago. Now we want to see not how what you're promising to do, but explain to us what it is you've done the last six years that warrants giving you another government or a majority government for the next four years. And that's where he stalled. 
because like I said, he doesn't have many examples of successes to point to in his government. And the second thing, as you know, and again, I as a political, I'm a little bit surprised by this as well. I was amongst those that were saying, ah, Canadians don't want an election, certainly not during a, a precipitous of a fourth wave coming of COVID, but they're going to forget about it. They haven't forgotten about it. And Canadians are very upset and they're asking the question to Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, you had a minority government. You spent a trillion dollars in that minority government. You had no obstacles. You had the support of the NDP and the Bloc Québécois. So you governed unfettered, an unfettered government for two years in the House of Commons. And now you're calling an election with no need. You could have governed for the next two years. And it seems Canadians on both of those points are saying to him, as we say in Greek, yes, Tasu. This doesn't add up. Why are we having this election? And to my surprise as well, they seem to be upset about it more than just for 48 hours. It's interesting that you mentioned the uh, the, the, the promises that he's made and uh, people wondering if, um, you know, wondering if whether the track record holds up. Uh, and specifically in this uh, election, uh, he seems to have, at least in Quebec, he seems to have put a lot of provincial politicians uh, up against him as well, because a lot of the promises he's making are overstepping into provincial jurisdictions. You know, he's talking about uh, hiring more doctors and hiring more health personnel in the long-term uh, care facilities, uh, you know, financing daycares, and all these things are provincial jurisdictions. So when, when he's being asked, how specifically are you going to deliver these doctors? What are you going to do? Like, there's really not much he could do on these matters, and it's really frustrating the provincial politicians, because and they, they've all come out publicly last week um and uh, i think that may also be reflective on you know what seems to be going on you're you're a hundred percent right we saw yesterday doug ford's frustration and he took a shot at the prime minister we saw mr the premier to go made it crystal clear a couple of weeks ago that he doesn't think uh, the ndp and liberal proposals are an option for him uh, and you're absolutely right there is a long history in this country of federal politicians particularly leaders in the conservative party of respecting provincial jurisdiction, uh, in particular on health matters and education. Uh, this prime minister seems to have crossed that line. And I think he also got caught off guard when in the O'Toole program going forward, uh, Aaron O'Toole has promised provincial governments a huge increase in healthcare transfer payments and consistent funding for many years, which is something uh, Mr. Trudeau has been promising, but not delivering and premiers have been asking for, for a number of years. So I think Mr. Trudeau was expecting a characteristic campaign from the conservatives of austerity and running to balance the budget in a short period of time. And I think he was also caught off guard when Mr. O'Toole came out with unwavering substantive uh, uh, commitments to support healthcare, which we all know is cracking in this country. And you're right, uh, you have that contrast and provincial politicians coast to coast to coast, it hasn't gone absent to any of them. There's sure we would be properly funded and yet we haven't been. And now Mr. O'Toole is stepping up and he's saying, I'm willing to sacrifice all other areas of federal uh, expenditures to make sure that Canadians are and their healthcare system is properly funded while respecting provincial jurisdiction. Well, look, just to be fair, because last weekend there was that one-on-one, -on -one, um, it wasn't really a debate, but it was RDI that had the one-on-one -on -one with all the leaders, which I found was a spectacular uh, new kind of format, uh, just direct questions to the, to the leaders. 
he wasn't he was a little bit reluctant to promise the 35 billion transfers he 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 did want to maintain that 6% inc, uh, consistent increase every year uh i'm not so sure if it's a, it's a, it's a card he's keeping under his sleeve but he wasn't he was a little reluctant on promising specifically the 35 billion transfers um well he wanted he wanted to make sure that what he promises is what he can deliver on and right now what he's already committed in terms of 6% increase is significantly higher than what the provincial governments have been receiving now having said that again it's just indicative of how responsible and errant tool approach the public policy is where he's not going to promise to anything and everything under the sun we've had that style of government mm -hmm. and i think premiers are going to be finding that particular style uh, of 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 political uh, dialogue a lot a lot more refreshing it's called responsible and transparent Tell me now, uh, how do the conservatives maintain this momentum? Uh, like we said, I mean, it's still early on, right? There's a lot of things that can happen. I mean, yeah, you, you, you well, not only did you bridge the gap, you surpassed it, uh, but we're still in the negligible percentage points, right? I mean, four or five percent. I mean, anything can turn around, especially this early on in the campaign. How do how do the conservatives uh, keep this momentum going until the very end? That's a very good question. Look, we're at literally the middle point today of the campaign. We're on day 18 of a 36 day campaign. So uh, right now, the, the conservatives have made up uh, all the, the ground they needed to make up to turn it into a horse race. And you're absolutely right. If you look at any any barometer of polling that's going on right now, it seems to be a very close race. And I think starting with the debate on Tevea and the two debate, the consortiums are doing very soon. Uh, Aaron O'Toole has an opportunity now to show to the Canadian public a little bit more of who he is because the truth of the matter is there's a sentiment, that's my sense in the country, of Trudeau fatigue. Like I like to say, I think they're tired of his dog and pony show. And now they wanna see who Aaron O'Toole is and what is he all about. The truth of the matter is, he's been a leader of Her Majesty's official opposition only for a year. And we saw at the beginning of the campaign, the biggest challenge for Mr. O'Toole was the lack of name recognition. And of course, uh, what's happened now in this campaign, the more Canadians see him, the more they realize, like I said, an amazing track record as someone who has served uh, the military in this country as a veteran. He's a, an accomplished lawyer and attorney. He has experience in the House of Commons, brief experience as a former cabinet minister. Uh, and what we see from Aaron O'Toole is somebody who's compassionate, empathetic, uh, understands that we're going through turbulent times. And I think he's going to reassure Canadians in these three upcoming debates, and particularly Quebecers, uh, that he is ready for the challenges ahead of us. Now, I'm very optimistic because, like I said, I look at Prime Minister Trudeau's track record, and he doesn't have much to run on. And this is what the bottom line is. Mr. O'Toole, his plan is clear. He documented it in a 160-page booklet which he, he as you saw he tabled and made public on day one of the campaign which in itself we know from our experience is uncharacteristic most politicians like mr trudeau did they table their uh, their program uh, only late in the campaign mr trudeau did that yesterday and usually they do that because they don't want to be scrutinized so mr o'toole did it on day one and he's saying what you see is what you get and uh, i think if he continues to be accountable transparent like this uh, we'll see the contrast in the next few days in the debates, and I believe after that, sky is the limit. How do we uh, how do we fix the economy, Leo? How do we get things back on track? I mean, uh, like you you mentioned it briefly before, uh, 
We were supposed to run mild deficits and balance in 2019. Uh, we ended that year, I think it was approximately 80 billion in deficit. And since then, obviously with the pandemic, we can all understand, I think even the conservatives, even Aaron O'Toole came out and said, it was it was justifiable to, 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 to give Canadians this money that they needed during this pandemic. But we are what, over, you know, uh, 20, over 1.2 trillion in debt. In debt, and we have a deficit to um, to cover of three billion dollars deficit, yeah. close to three hundred fifty billion. Uh, how do we uh, how do we turn this big ship around? Look, uh, the first step is we got to get rid of the fiscally responsible government because yes, during the pandemic they needed to to spend on CERB and and and, and various programs in order to prop up our small and medium sized businesses and to support Canadians in this time of need. But let's not forget, Canadians should not forget that the deficit and the debt started running up prior to COVID. Our debt to GDP ratio that Mr. Trudeau inherited in 2015 was the best in the world, and by post uh, pre-COVID period had become one of the worst amongst the G7 countries. So like I said earlier, he promised a short-term deficit in the first couple of years that ballooned up into being an unnecessary deficit. And during now CERB uh, and during COVID, we saw programs which I believe were overkill. And even though the oppositions cooperated with the government, we saw money where they shouldn't have and didn't spend money where they should have. Now, what Aaron O'Toole is proposing is a is a 10-year plan to balance the, the deficit. Uh, he's proposing gradual balanced approach to creating wealth in the country and making sure that the uh, our debt payments and our debt deficit payments are balanced with our economic growth and has some very clear ideas of how to create economic incentives. Number one is you need to basically unleash the free enterprise market and small entrepreneurs and businesses in this country that have been saddled with red tape and other, you know, what I call disincentivized programs of the Trudeau government. And, and I look, the Conservative Party has a track record of success in managing strong economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, let's talk very quickly about international affairs because you mentioned that well in your opinion there's a you know very poor track record um and, and you've been very vocal uh, on a number of issues i'm thinking about the the uyghur community in china uh, the the armenian conflict that we saw recently uh, in the region of artsakh uh, there's a present uh, destabilizing effect happening in the eastern mediterranean Um, would you say that Canada has lost its credibility on the world stage? I mean, you know, let's also remember we, we lost our bid to the to, to a seat in the UN uh, Security Council. Um, very questionable leadership in Afghanistan. We're seeing everything unfold now in the last couple of days. Um, again, a very sideline approach to the East Mediterranean uh, issue. Uh, it, it just, and I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it feels like we're afraid to take a stand and to be more vocal uh, as a world leader. And I remember, for example, uh, well, I was too young, but I, I, I've read on, you know, Mulroney's stance on South Africa, uh, you know, Kretzian in the Gulf War. I remember that one, uh, even Harper's stand in the Middle East and, uh, uh, you know, against China with uh, with a conflict in, in the Ukraine. Have we fallen off the record uh, as a world de- uh, as a world leader? My friend, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, Canada, without a doubt, in the last six years, when it comes to foreign policy, we've lost our moral authority. Uh, Canada used to have a foreign policy uh, approach, uh, which was very principled, and it wasn't 
just with the previous government of Stephen Harper. It goes back to Lester B. Pearson. Uh, we remember how well respected around the world we were for peacekeeping. We remember the battles that the governments of Brian Mulroney took on in leading the way to fight apartheid in South Africa, uh, and so on and so forth. And over the last few years, we have a government, Mr. Trudeau, that has been kowtowing to the Chinese communist regime in Beijing, which he himself said a few years ago, is a government that he admires. Imagine the Prime Minister of Canada, when he was running in 2015, said that the Beijing communist totalitarian regime is a well, that government that he admires has been detaining for over a thousand days illegally without due process two Canadians in Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. And you know what? Their names haven't been mentioned enough in the campaign. I hope they will be in these debates. It's as if Mr. Trudeau forgot about him. So these people have been held without due process been bartered in hostage diplomacy for the Chinese because we're respecting extradition treaties with our friend and ally and one of the great democracies and judiciary systems in the world with the Americans. And Mr. Trudeau is kowtowing to the Chinese instead of taking a strong stance. We've seen Beijing trample on democracy in Hong Kong, a boot to the throat of the democracy activists. Canada, almost silent on the issue. China has been uh, pushing around Taiwan, another friend and ally economic trading partner, Mr. Trudeau, almost silent on the issue. The Parliament of Canada asked Mr. Trudeau almost three years ago to list the IRGC, the regime in Iran, another totalitarian regime on the list of terrorist groups. The Trudeau government has refused to do so. The Parliament of Canada overwhelmingly asked our government to, to designate what's going on to the poor Uyghur people in China as what it is, and it is a genocide. The Trudeau government refuses to do so. And in the process of all this, George, just a year ago, the, the Trudeau government sent $10 billion of investment into the Asia Infrastructure Bank, which has been dominated by, again, this communist regime. And last but not least, uh, we saw the Trudeau government bypass an embargo, allowing for technology, Canadian technology, LR3 technology to be sold to Turkey, which then in turn used it on Turkish drones, which they gave to the Azerbaijanis, which killed innocent men, women and children in Artsakh in Iran, uh, which is, of course, important to our community and to our friends and allies around the world. And not only did our government bypass our embargo to sell this technology, all we got from 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 Mr. Trudeau is is um, bobbing and weaving. Uh, they promised to have an investigation by Global Affairs to find out how that technology got into the Aziri hands, and it was basically swept under the rug. And la and again, I, I will add another element to to how egregious the foreign policy of the Trudeau government has been: uh, silence, complete and utter silence on the belligerent behavior of Turkey towards a NATO friend and ally in Greece in their constant attempt to, to push the envelope and infringe on Greek waters, Greek islands in the Aegean. Not a word of solidarity. Well, there's been also that unilateral decision to open up Varosha, which is a, a district in, uh, in, in eastern Cyprus, which is forbidden by United Nations resolutions. Uh, and we find out now that their plans are to build a permanent drone base, which can inevitably affect the 
the the security in the Middle East. Um, you know, we're talking we're thinking about countries like uh, like Israel, for example, or even North Africa, Egypt and Libya. Um, there, there's this huge threat right now that can destabilize that entire region. I read the other day Reuters was reporting that Turkey has taken over the airport in Kabul, and uh, they're planning on negotiating with the Taliban on maintaining that control. I mean, I don't know of any other country that has control of another sovereign nation's airport. Um, and we're playing the fiddle here. We're saying, you know, well, uh, you know, Turkey is a, is an important NATO ally. I get that they're an ally. How important are they? Uh, that to me is the big question mark. And how come there aren't any further repercussions on these actions? Look, I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it for what it is. I've said this all the time. Canada and Mr. Trudeau are putting ahead of human rights ahead of freedom and democracy, ahead of our obligations as a NATO, uh, as a NATO member, uh, our obligations, and we're putting, uh, we're putting ahead some petty trade interests of some Canadian companies they have with Turkey over all those fundamental values that are important to Canada. Now, we can do a whole show on foreign affairs and the debacle under the Trudeau government, and you highlighted quite appropriately uh, the situation vis-a-vis Canada and Turkey relations. But look... Uh, let's not forget during the election campaign, when protesters in Cuba were being imprisoned and arrested again without due process because they're asking for bread, water, Tylenol, and oxygen for their hospitals, and they're being trampled on by a dictatorship in Havana, Mr. Trudeau took three days to put out just a veiled declaration of support for the democracy movement in Cuba. Because again, I remind our are uh, your fans that are listening to us, uh, George. And it's very simple. The Trudeau, the Trudeau family has been supporting this brutal dictatorship in Havana for years. So it's not a shock or a surprise to us that all of a sudden Mr. Trudeau is, is, is soft-pedaling condemnations. And what has happened now again in Afghanistan, and it's been brought to light because of the fact that we're in the middle of the campaign, is our government knew for months what was happening in Afghanistan. We knew of the pull-up. We knew of the advancement of the Afghani forces. It's been well-documented by our intelligence services, by news outlets around the world, and we let them down. We let down translators, support staff, Afghanis that were helping Canada in our fight for democracy against the Taliban and against extremism in Afghanistan. And once again, and I'm not saying Mr. Trudeau did it uh, intentionally, obviously he didn't do it intentionally, but incompetence isn't intentional. It is what it is. But this is a glowing example, once again, of the Because where in the world can Canada go again in a peacekeeping effort, in an intervention on behalf of human rights or democracy, when the people of Afghanistan will say, don't believe them, don't believe the Maple Leaf, and don't believe the Canadian Armed Forces when they say, we will stand by you in time of need. We let those people down. We let them down because of Mr. Trudeau's incompetence. And like I said, I've tried to highlight case by case, example by example of, of the terrible outcomes we've had on the foreign affairs level uh, under this government. George, I can be talking about this for another hour, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And look, I appreciate the time you take. We're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. I just want to ask you one other question because I mean we've we've had discussions, uh, you know, frequently. Um, how are the thing? How are things internally over at the Conservative Party? I mean, how are the you know how are sentiments towards Erno Tool? I remember, uh, you know, discussing a while back when he was first elected leader that. 
you know, perhaps he wasn't the man for the job. Things obviously turning around now. I mean, the numbers are are, are reflecting that as well. Um, he, I think he's worked very hard in bringing the party towards, you know, a more moderate center, uh, which, you know, many analysts are thinking that, you know, he's putting behind him all, you know, the, the, the more social conservative faction of the party. Uh, do you see this as a potential threat of divisiveness within the party? The party has never been more united. Uh, and I can tell you this, uh, and you know it as well, in politics, victory has many fathers and, and uh, defeat is an orphan. Uh, so uh, right now, things are going really well. Mr. O'Toole suffered what every leader of the opposition in all political parties suffer uh, right across uh, government and, and parliament. And that is opposition leaders is the toughest job in, in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have the power of government at your discretion to do things for your constituents for, for and for people and for citizens. Uh, you don't control those levers on the, and the agenda on a day-to-day -day basis. So I've seen many opposition leaders uh, struggle uh, with those challenges. And quite frankly, I think Mr. O'Toole in the short time he was leader of the opposition, uh, stick handled through those challenges very well. And the proof right now is, is in the pudding because we're halfway through an election campaign. Uh, he's doing extremely well. He's well positioned to expose the inadequacies of the Strudeau government and replace them. And I can tell you, speaking to the uh, the arm, the fundraising arm of the party, uh, funds are coming in at record numbers. I can tell you, talking to candidates on the ground, both in our target ridings and some of the more difficult ridings, uh, the the spirits are very high, very positive, and and I know I know Mr. O has a, an element to him that can never be underestimated, and that's the fact he's he has been underestimated. He was underestimated in the leadership race. And I was proud to support him. And of course, he surprised people then. He was underestimated going into this election. And we've seen halfway through this election, he's surprising people again. And I look forward to continuously uh, seeing uh, Aaron O'Toole uh, become prime minister and continue to surprise Canadians. Because the truth is, as we've discussed a number of subjects here on your, on your show, and we've discussed uh, off the air uh, together, the country's facing a bunch of existential crises and challenges, and we need adult leadership. We need somebody mature, uh, somebody with steady hands on the rudder. Uh, the, the hall pass uh, of Mr. Trudeau, and that's really what it was. In 2015, we went through a period of austerity, a tough recession, and I think Canadians wanted to sort of break the shackles of austerity and spend and have a good time. Uh, but we it became overkill a little bit. It got carried away. And I think now Canadians are coming to the realization we need a steady plan. The next 10 years are going to be uh, difficult and we need adults in government. You mentioned before how important this phase is now going into the debates. Um, you know, uh, Aaron O'Toole needs to make sure that you know, he doesn't obviously underperform. He needs to uh, make sure that he um, he solidifies that lead uh, going into, you know, the final stage and, you know, all the way to the end of the campaign. How is he how is he preparing? How is he um, how is he how is he dealing with that? There's uh, I think there's uh, one or two in French, I think, and one in English uh, coming up. Yeah, there's two two French debates and an English debate. Uh 
Look, the good news is, from what I understand from uh, the people close to him, uh, he is not over-preparing. Uh, you know, he, he, he's Zen. He's very comfortable with uh, what he's proposing to Canadians. Uh, he's very confident in the, how the campaign has been going, and you see it. You see the contrast between his confident demeanor an understanding of where he wants to be on September 20th compared to Mr. Trudeau, who looks like uh, who's someone stuck uh, in the middle of the ocean without a life jacket. And of course, when the prime minister feels and, you, and presents that kind of perception, that's that that doesn't bold well for Canadians. So I know Mr. O'Toole has been running every morning because he's an avid runner. Uh, I know that uh, he's been preparing, but in all frankness, um, he doesn't need to prepare that much for these debates. Uh, he's been preparing for the last couple of years. It started in the leadership. It started during his year as an opposition leader. If you need to prepare yourself uh, to deliver the campaign, it's because you're not ready to govern and you're not ready to win. And as you've heard many stories that have spouted up over the last few days of the liberal war rule, reaching out to liberals across the country, asking them for ideas or quote unquote, big ideas that can turn the campaign around. If you need to on day 18th or 16th or 15th of a general election, which by the way, Mr. Trudeau called himself, if you need to be scouting around and shopping around for ideas, you're in deep, deep trouble. Mm -hmm. So like I said, Mr. O'Toole's ideas were made public in a 160 page book on day one of the campaign. He has stuck to it. He has stuck to it in the most disciplined way. He's also doing something unique in politics, George, uh, which I haven't seen in my years as a uh, as somebody engaged in politics. He's running the most positive campaign I've ever seen of any leader. No negative attacks, uh, no wedge issues. Uh, and it seems to be working. And as, as I know from my political experience, I, I haven't seen that very often because more yeah. often than not, Wedge politics and negative politics is something that uh, seems to pay and all political parties use it. That is probably the most refreshing thing in this campaign with Aaron O'Toole. He has refused to, to sink down to the bottom of the barrel because somewhere in politics about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, because I'm getting at a certain age, somewhere along the way, somebody invented this uh, tactic in politics of defining your opponent which is quote, polite words for we're going to lie about your opponent. And somewhere along the line, that invention has, has gotten traction and is something political parties have been using election after election after election. Like we've heard Mr. Trudeau the last few days talk about Mr. O'Toole supporting a two-tier health system, which is a blatant lie. We're saying Mr. O'Toole is, is, is a fake pro-choice guy. He's for abortion. That's another lie. So Mr. Trudeau is using that old school of politics approach, which is if I say it often enough and loud enough, people... I'm going to present to people with what I know, what I have, what I propose, and I will let the Canadian public make their choice. Leo, thanks again for your time. I won't, uh, I won't take uh, much more of it. Um, I always appreciate talking to you. Uh, I don't know what else you're, you're planning for the campaign, but uh, good luck with that. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be talking very soon, that I know for sure. Thanks for having me on, George. Thank you. All right, Leo, take care.